Hey, I'm Tegan. And I'm Eric. This is the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. We would like to thank Susan, Cecilia, and Richard, as well as Caitlin, for being patrons of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, go to proweaverpod.com slash support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution. Have questions about weaving? Send them to hello at proweaverpod.com, and we will have many episodes dedicated to answering those questions with our podcast guests. This week, we talk with Justin Squizero of the Burroughs Garrett in Newberry, Vermont. Handweaver Justin Squizero challenges modern definitions of progress by creating functional textiles that celebrate the natural world and the dignity of human labor. Echoing a time when utilitarian objects were entirely handcrafted, his work connects material, maker, and user across time and place. Squizero's venture, the Burroughs Garret, draws on the textile traditions of his northern Vermont home, marrying natural dyes and fibers with a reserved aesthetic rooted in early New England. Produced on his 19th century farm using 200-year-old handlooms, Squizero's textiles examine the role of handcraft in a post-industrial society, questioning the human experience in a digital age. We met Justin when I invited us to his home for a studio visit last year. We were able to walk his homestead that he shares with his husband, checking out how his farm life intersects with his creative pursuits. It was fabulous to be witness to how he has established his life to revolve around what he loves. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Justin as we talk about getting over the fear of linen, natural dyeing, and the benefits of keeping close records of your work. We started the podcast by talking to Justin about his journey to weaving. Yeah. Um, I never quite know how to um, explain that one. It, I wish it was more linear than it, you know, life actually is. But, um, but the linear version of that story uh, really starts with my grandmother, who spun and wove and knit and dyed you know, stuff with onion skins on her stove and... Um, did all sorts of great textile things. And uh, so my earliest memories of her involve her doing something with wool or yarn um, in one way or another. And um, she taught me how to spin first. And I think I was 12-ish, which taught me how to spin wool. Um, and then I learned how to spin flax. And one thing kind of led to the next. And I got interested in weaving. Um, mostly because I thought the looms were cool. It was, you know, this great big machine and it had a great noise and um, uh, produced, you know, fabric at the end of it as opposed to just a bunch of string. And um, so she really, I guess, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, exposed me to it at a young age in a way yeah. that um, made it seem very accessible, um, even though she didn't teach me how to weave uh, directly. Um, she really had a big influence on 
my pursuit of that. Um, but my family were uh, reenactors and in history, and so I was. I spent a lot of time at historic sites as a kid growing up. Oh, that's um, cool. I got very interested in old textiles and technology. Um, so one thing kind of led the next in that way, and weaving um, tied in nicely with with all that sort of stuff. Um, so I was pursuing it on my own for a while, and then started working in museums where I wasn't weaving, and. Um, over the course of that, uh, between like layoffs from the museum jobs that were seasonal, um, I got to know Kate Smith up here in Vermont um, with her business, Eaton Hill Textile Works, and then later her reopening of the Marshfield School of Weaving. Um, and so she really kind of molded me um, at just the right time. At the perfect timing, the perfect catalyst of needing work and loving the, what you're doing, it seems yeah. serendipitous. Yeah, it was great. Uh, before we get away from this, I'm curious, was your grandmother making things for reenacting? Or was she just doing it for herself? She was doing it for herself. She volunteered at a local um, historic house uh, museum that the Historical Society um, in her town ran. And they did some projects there. Um, I wouldn't necessarily describe them as historic reproduction. I would say a lot of her stuff was very inspired by the past. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but but she wasn't herself like reenacting. I mean, she would like demonstrate and stuff at that historic house, but it wasn't the same sort of sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, and there were plenty of like your classic nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies kind of home textile hobby craft type projects um it worked in there too <laughs> oh yeah of course yeah as you expect yeah you picture the color i'm sure <laughs> oh eric's favorite color My scheme favorite. That's right. <laughs> so what kind of led you into pursuing creating these textiles as a career like you were working with Kate Smith, you were working alongside her and learning her skills and techniques. How did that translate to, oh, now I can do this as a job? Um, I would say the biggest appeal was the ability to be self-employed, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and work with my hands and do something creative uh, with that. But I you know, worked in nonprofits for many years and... Um, uh, you know, that has its ups and downs. And I worked some positions that were grant funded and sort of the instability of that um, gets tiring a little bit. And I suppose if you're going to be that unstable, you might as well be your own boss. Um, right. As you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so things just kind of aligned in that way. And so for me, I do certainly enjoy the weaving and I like the stuff that I make. But a huge part of the appeal really is um, being self-employed and running my own business and having that kind of control over my schedule and um, being able to do it where I live. And, uh, you know, it's it's much more kind of integral to the rest of my life than a standard like nine to five would be, yeah. which, again, you guys, I've seen your house. And I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so how do you find um, working at home? Uh, how do you like stay motivated and focused and uh, continue weaving while you've got all of this other stuff going on, like renovations and working on the farm and all that kind of stuff? Um, that's the hardest part. I guess when the bills show up, 
Mm. Yeah. Um, the motivation becomes a little stronger maybe yes. than it is other times. Um, yeah, that's the hardest, you know, the trickiest thing is just juggling all of the other things that go on. Mm. Um, I'm trying to um, work more seasonally. It's sort of been a pipe dream. Um, it would be great to have less weaving work in the summertime and more of it in the winter. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, when the orders arrive, the orders arrive. And so um, I haven't been able to quite get into that perfect perfect uh scenario and that might not actually exist that scenario that might just be like a dream um that i imagine other people will get to have but um <laughs> but yeah it's tricky uh you know and uh sometimes you know i'll do outside work all day and then try to work at night at the loom you know um fit it in here and there but it's tricky yeah the distractions can be um, a real drag on productivity sometimes yeah, yeah i hear you there I've been successfully distracting myself for the last week, just prepping for the next project, quote unquote, right. mm -hmm. which is really, I'm killing time because I'm not ready to commit myself to it. Yeah. Like, well, and also like... we've been having other things bringing us away. Yeah. Like uh, doctors, you can finally go back to the doctors again. So we've been doing some of that. And then we've also been prepping our house in Glens Falls for sale. So it's like sort of i feel like for me as i get more things on my plate i sort of get better at doing all the things it's when i have a few things and not a lot to do that i sort of really drag those things and for some reason just don't do them because i have all the time in the world to do them you know what i mean right right <laughs> yeah that's almost yeah that's the worst really it's when you think you've got lots of time uh, and i definitely uh can fall into that sometimes where i feel like i can weave quickly so i think like oh i can fit that in later it'll be fine i should take advantage of whatever the moment is right now to get this other thing done mm -hmm. and then of course when the time actually comes to do that <laughs> do the weaving in the end um i have to uh hold myself to it yeah i hear you there yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where do you source your materials for your, the weaving set you make because I know some of them you spin by hand, but others you also purchase wholesale or retail or what what have you. So I'm curious, where do you source your stuff? And also, how important is the accuracy of the materials that you're ordering? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, so it depends on which material. Um, as far as linen goes, I've been buying an awful lot of that from um, the Georgia Yarn Company. Mm -hmm. uh, lately, um, he just stocks bleached or natural, which for um, a lot of my work is fine. Um, and the price is right. And he's got um, maybe the widest range of singles linen available that I've found so far. So that works really well for me. Um, I would say that it has as um, close a character um to the historic stuff that i can get that's machine spun everything with like um the, the thing with machine spun yarn is that it it has what it has and mm -hmm. um there's a certain kind of irregularity that can't be mimicked with a machine um like a slubby textured yarn doesn't look like the irregularity that you get in a real hand spun yarn mm. so there's just sort of like some of that that i have to sacrifice um for the for the sake of price, uh, yeah. but if anybody's listening who wants a one hundred percent hand spun whatever, 
uh, let me know. I'd love to be employed for the next five years, um, yeah. whatever, making a thing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so that's where I've been getting most of my linen from, although I've also been purchasing um, the Swedish Bakken's yarn through Bob Stuga. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's handy when a client can't afford to pay me to dye the yarn if they want color in it, um, because Bakken's offers a line of dyed linen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll work with that if that's a price consideration um, for somebody. Um, I've also been getting most of my cotton from the Georgia Yarn Company, okay. um, both plied and singles. I don't work with a ton of it, or just I haven't been lately. Um, but uh, but he's been great about being able to get weird sizes for me. Um, I've actually got a lot or a lot of um, stuff that he had. Um, custom plied for me for coverlets oh. because it's a weird size that nobody else makes or people don't regularly um, supply. And he's also gotten me singles cotton, which um, is great. And then for wool, I've been kind of all over the place. Um, I have bought an awful lot from Peter Patches in Central Falls, Rhode Island. Okay. Milland outlet. Um, you know, he at some point got several hundred pounds of a singles wool that is really. Um, a good size and um, has, I think, a good character um, for the kind of historic reproduction type stuff. You know, it's not the trouble with a lot of the wool on the market nowadays. Is it tends to be too soft. Yeah, uh, it's sort of too nice for a lot of the stuff that I generally make. Um, <clears throat> so this particular singles has it's a little. I wouldn't call it coarse, but it's certainly not like a super soft um, kind of luxury sort of a yarn. Yeah, it's more uh, of a utilitarian wool versus like a fashion yeah. wool that you would want against your skin. Right, right. Yeah, it's got like, yeah, it's got that body to it. Um, but I've also um, lately been buying from uh, Maritime Family Fiber, located in Maine. She sells Briggs and Little yarn, which is spun in Canada. Oh, okay. Um, so I like that because it's from at least the northeastern um, part of the continent. <laughs> it's getting a little closer to home. Um, I've worked with some really beautiful stuff that uh, Green Mountain Spinnery um, spun for Kate. Um, yeah. I'd love to work with more of that. Um, it's just sort of been a matter of finding a client in the project to line up with the um, more local fiber. So I'm pushing towards that direction, but <clears throat> um, uh, haven't explored that fully yet, I guess is what I should say. <laughs> yeah. And it's also a little challenging, I find, with doing the local fiber because not only do you have to source the wool, then you have to source your spinner and make sure that they can meet the specs that you're looking for and also handle either the small or large quantities that you bring. There's like a whole bunch of other factors that go into it. Right, probably. Yeah, and I guess... Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, probably the biggest thing about that that wasn't mentioned is getting a client that's willing to pay for local fiber. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Making that piece of the puzzle fit in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of it too, is that like, depending on what the job is, sometimes it's so small that in order to get enough quantity put together to get a custom run of yarn made, um, sometimes that's just beyond what um, I can reasonably put together at a time. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's been some variables. This new kind of coverlet branch of what I'm doing, I think we'll be able to change that because it's the same yarn, no matter what, um, over and over again. And so um, 
I'm trying to sort of lock in my yarn source for that. I've been experimenting lately, yeah. which has been fun. Mm. Trying out different stuff. Yeah, that's always exciting. Yeah. So when you, when a client approaches you or maybe you have a portfolio set out for a client, what is that kind of conversation like? How do you come up with pricing? How do you come up with how you design your workflow for the client? What does that inside process look like? <laughs> it usually begins by my wishing that I had an administrative assistant or <laughs> more organizational skills. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it depends on the client, um, for sure, depending on uh, who they are and what the work is. Some people, um, you know, show up knowing exactly what they want and need. And, um, so they tend to be, um, that process tends to be very straightforward. Um, in that regard, it's mostly just me coming up with the pricing and then moving forward. Mm -hmm. Um, in some cases I've worked with a few clients who, are interested in a custom fabric, but don't really know what that will be um, yet. So, so it might uh, involve sending out samples of fabric I've um, woven in the past. It might involve a lot of, um, you know, lots of emailing, lots of photos back and forth, and and mm -hmm. discussion of options and that sort of thing. Um, so that aspects, you know, ranges considerably. Um, Pricing is one of the easier things, I think, for me now, and it wasn't when I first started, because um, at first I would just sit down with a piece of paper and like try to go through and figure out how long I thought everything was going to take yeah. um, <clears throat> to accomplish. And, you know, I would spend hours sometimes trying to come up with pricing on stuff. And especially when you have somebody who is interested in a range of different options, that could be many hours coming up with many options, which right. may or may not turn into a job. Um, and I realized that that just wasn't very practical. Um, so I actually developed a really complicated spreadsheet that now does the um, most of the, the work for me. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I, I plug in all the specs for the job. And, um, you know, sort of to backtrack, I worked uh, for Kate, um, you know, directly for her business for um, about four years. And as part of that, I um, was basically an independent contractor. So I tracked all my hours to figure out how much she was going to pay me. And with that, she um, used to break down the work into things that we um, paid out hourly um, or, or calculated based on an hourly time frame, and then things that we based at uh, like piecework, basically. So like all the setup and finishing we um, logged time for and then the actual weaving per yard we would agree on a set price that would get paid mm -hmm. for doing that which worked really well for our working relationship and what was great for me is that i have and you know accumulated four years worth of data mm. on how long it took me to um, make a warp and how long it took to beam it on and how long it took to draw it in and slay it and um and then with that i could mesh it up with the specs for the job and then really hone in on how long it takes me to thread a heddle or slay oh. one dent in the reed, basically. You know, just do the math and just divide it over and over again and come up with an average. So I was able to basically take that information that I know about myself and then plug that into the spreadsheet. So when I give it the specs of how wide it is and what the set is, <clears throat> the spreadsheet will come up with the, ends, you know, the total number of ends. It'll tell me the total number of picks. It'll figure out how long I should 
theoretically, <laughs> take to um, draw it into the harness, do all the slaying, uh, do all the other stuff. It multiplies that times an hourly rate. Um, I have a price per pick factored in there, so it'll just multiply the number of picks by the that price, and then it just spits out a number at the end, um, huh. which has saved me so much time. Um, and sort of the agony that I think we all have about pricing our work, because um, you're always wondering, is this too high? Is it too low? And um, at least with this system, I feel more confident that the price that I've come up with is an accurate one. Yeah. Um, well, if I was a better business person, I would still be keeping track of my time <laughs> and figure out if my numbers are still um, correct. But, um, but I, think, I think I'm still on track with that. Um, That's awesome. And now you have this like wealth of data at your fingertips. So you can really narrow down to like the pinpoint of like the cost per pick kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. How do you keep track of how many picks you make? Right. Well, so that all basically worked backwards for me. Basically, when I worked for Kate, we agreed upon a set price for one of the fabrics specifically that um, <clears throat> I was weaving a lot of for her, which is a type of um, wool upholstery fabric mm-hmm. um, that was common in the 18th and 19th centuries. And that was one where we used the same yarns over and over again. Um, the warp was all um, a, um, a worsted from Jaggerspun, and the weft was a custom singles from Green Mountain Spinnery. And so it always had the same number of picks per inch, and the yards were always the same length. So, you know, it was always the same number of picks. And I found that I could produce enough of that fabric comfortably in a day to earn a living wage that worked for me. So basically, I just took that number and divided it by the number of picks, the number that she paid me, by the number of picks in that piece, and then figured this is, you know, <clears throat> this is how that divides out. And, you know, when you think about it, it is basically the same amount of time and effort to weave something. Uh, we've one pick if the fabric is you know 18 inches wide or if it's 48 inches wide it's the same general um, effort so um, having that really saved saved me that trouble of trying to figure out you know how do i compare this one fabric that has very few picks in an inch to this other fabric that has tons of picks per inch and come up with a price that is accurate between them you know am i going to be like you know losing my shirt on this fine job or mm. making out like too much of a bandit maybe on the, uh, the course one. So, um, so that's where I'm at now. That might change down the line, but so far I've really been happy with it. And with the spreadsheet, I can change the specs really easy. So if somebody wants to know the price for 10 yards of this fabric or 20 yards, it's, you know, I just change one cell in the spreadsheet and it pops out the next number for me. So I don't have to, you know, spend an hour <laughs> trying to calculate a whole new price. That's awesome. Uh, which, yeah, and I guess that also uh, is an important difference with the way that I've approached it to the way that Kate did and other people sometimes do. Um, I price everything by the job. So, so in that way, like, I have no minimum order size. Um, it's just the number of, you know, the, the price per yard, if you only order two yards of fabric, is considerably higher. Mm. You know, then it would be per yard if you ordered 20 of the same fabric, you know, because of all that setup time and cost, the way it gets distributed. Mm-hmm. So this system, I think, has allowed me to be able to come up also with, a, with an accurate price for doing a very tiny job versus a great big one. Um, so works for me so far, Sweet. like I said. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's always, I, 
if since you've been listening to the podcast, I'm sure you've heard like that's what seems to be a lot of people's challenging challenge is being able to price their work accurately and to make sure that they're making a living wage. And it sounds like you've really honed in at least what works for you, a good system, which is totally something to aspire to. Yeah, I think, you know, in that system, I'm sure it will be different for, you know, everybody approaching it. I think I had, you know, maybe one of the, um, I mean, I, there were many, many, many great things I took away from my experience working for Kate, but one of them, I think, was the ability to accumulate all of this data and information um, about more of the business side of it at the same time as I was, you know, working on my weaving technique. Um mm as opposed to having to like jump into it, um, you know, both feet, cold turkey, and try to figure out well, how, do, how do I price work? <laughs> like, what right. can I sell this for? Um, what should I sell it for? Um, so, now, yeah, that was a big advantage. Now, were you working on power looms when you were working with Kate? Or were you nope. looking on hand looms? All by hand, yeah. So she does all of her work using 18th and 19th century equipment um, in the same way that I do. So Nice. Uh, and she's one of... Um, I mean, certainly there are other people out there reproducing, um, fabric or just generally producing fabric, uh, by hand, but I would say within the reproduction market, I think she's maybe the largest doing it all by hand, you know, without power looms. Um, I could be totally wrong about that. Um, I don't quite know uh, enough about the market really to be able to say that accurately, but, um, but that is one of the things that makes what she does distinct from what a lot of the other operations are. are Yeah. Where do you find your looms? Because you have this plethora of beautiful old looms. Where do they find you? Do you find them? How does that work? Well, from one um, loom collector to another. Yeah, from one loom collector <laughs> right, to right, another. Right. Yeah, collector, hoarder, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> they, they mostly find me, I would say. Um, I'm not really actively pursuing any loom acquisition um for fear of uh you know um structural collapse in my house uh Mm. (laughs) uh, and the inability to move around inside of it but um the very first loom that i got came from a museum that deaccessioned it because they just had a whole bunch and needed to get rid of them Mm. um actually the second loom that i got came the same way (laughs) um a historical society in that case had one that that had no relevance to what they were doing and were getting rid of it and um i was kind of in the right place at the right time um i bought i bought actually a very special loom off of ebay um years ago it's uh it's a typical late 18th early 19th century four post loom but it has one of maybe only two surviving um countermarsh um Oh. heads that we know about from the northeast um that still exist yeah so it was it was used um by somebody doing fancy weaving at some point um and of course it's sort of funny at the time that i got it i had no idea what it was what like all of those parts were because um, it also had counterbalance um, equipment for it so i was familiar with pulleys and and horses and that part of it but then it had also all of these lambs and cords and um the box with the coopers and um no clue what it was for years <laughs> then finally figured out what it was and um in discussions with rabbit goody of um thistle hill weavers who does historic reproduction um textiles 
she had only seen one other one from the period um, still around that had all that stuff with it. Um, so it turns out that loom is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, so there's that one. And then now that I, um, after I met Kate, she's sort of, um, I would call her kind of a historic loom clearinghouse, maybe. Um, <laughs> they find her in a big way. And, um, and she, you know, makes them available to students. Um, you know, she teaches on them, sells them. Um, and so through her, I, um, I've gotten my most recent acquisition, um, which is the great big monstrosity that you guys can see behind me and uh, yes. the listeners can see on my website. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, I guess. Oh, there's one other loom I got off of Craigslist. Once. Okay. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't looking for it, but a friend saw it and sent it on to me. And um, it's actually, it's kind of my dirty little secret. It's my modern loom from 1910. Whoa. <laughs> um, yes, I know. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's an Anders Lurvad um, loom set up counter marsh, and um, it's really good at what it does, and it has an auto take up, which was really why I bought it. And it was, it cost um, less than the amount of money I paid to rent a truck to go pick it up. So I thought the price was right. And it was yeah. Worth it. <laughs> yeah, that was the same with our first AVL loom. The price was too perfect and yeah and we didn't have a vehicle so we had to rent a right. truck and it cost us an ungodly yeah. amount of money <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> i actually i spent i had to make more shafts for that loom shafts and lambs because it was missing a whole lot of them and i spent probably double what i paid for the loom just to buy the um the lumber to um rip into those shafts and things so you oh, know just goodness. keep your eyes peeled you can find the find a bargain yeah. Yeah, that I'm always just sort of cruising, you know, websites to see what's out there and if somebody's just trying to like give something away, I always hop on yeah. it. Yeah. I I've put you can always a, sell them later. <laughs> yes. I've put my foot down a little bit cuz we're at loom capacity. Mm -hmm. So they are no longer this year they have not been entering. Yeah. Maybe next yeah. year we might find some that find new homes. We will see. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the challenges that you have making reproduction fabric? Um, some of the challenges. Well, um, you know, we talked about yarn supply a little bit. I would say that that is one of the, one of the challenges of it. Um, there's just like so little material on the market today compared to what there was historically. Um, so in that way, I'm kind of boxed in um, with certain things, you know, the, the quality okay. material that was available um, 200 years ago um, is just not existent any longer. Um, or it is in parts of the world that I don't have contacts with, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like <clears throat> in India right now, you can get incredibly fine, you know, singles cotton. You can get incredibly fine hand-spun singles cotton. Uh, but I don't have, you know, a connection to India to, um, you know, get that yarn. Um, and it's just not being made at all in the United States and nobody's selling it. You know, a lot of the yarns that I'm looking for aren't the ones that a lot of hand weavers want to work with. Um, so that can be challenging. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, I mean, that might be the biggest challenge um hmm, that's a good question i hadn't thought about that 
I try to think about the the good things. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's tons of good things about it, but I'm always uh, curious yeah. what what kind of makes it difficult because then it's like, oh, well, can we then brainstorm about? Well, maybe we can find like a yarn buy to figure out how to buy singles cotton from India, which would be right. so wicked. I am. You have inspired me to maybe maybe weave with some linen singles for some clothing yardage yes <laughs> excellent I, so um, it is yeah. on it is on my list of things that i'm going to accomplish i think in 2020 or 2021 awesome. yeah it's percolating right it's now. percolating yeah it's i'm figuring yeah. out the ideas and getting it so for somebody who's never worked with linen singles yeah. what would be some of the suggestions that you have uh, okay. So I guess the first one is don't be afraid. Okay. Um, it gets a bad rap, um, and, which it doesn't deserve. The thing, I, you know, um, one key to keep in mind with linen in general, whether it's singles or applied, is that there is no elasticity. It stretches to a point and then it breaks. It doesn't spring back. So, mm-hmm. um, so with that in mind, I think it's actually a great material to work with if you want to dial in your technique, because any places where there's room for improvement will become um, readily apparent <laughs> in working with it. That lack of elasticity means it really it doesn't cover any shortcomings. Yeah. When I first started working with linen um, regularly, I had a lot to learn. And I <laughs> um, was able to figure out really like where, you know, my warp tension maybe was not very good in certain ways and, you know, picked up on that because of the material, um, and, and other things. Um, so that is one, um, one thing to keep in mind is that elasticity, uh, keep, keep your least sticks in. Okay. Um, don't take them out. They, uh, by having them in, you can actually, well, I'll back up. So singles, especially they want to ply with their neighbors. Uh, there's a certain amount of twist that is just live in a singles yarn that wants to bind up with everybody next to it. And if you allow it, it will bind itself right up to the back of the harness oh. and you will not get a shed or you'll get a nasty shed. The least sticks allow you to separate everybody out. And it's like this little like checkpoint basically mm-hmm. um, at the back of the loom. And people have different strategies of dealing with this. Um, in some places they will um, weight the sticks over the back of the loom so that they stay at the back, um, towards the back beam. Um, I personally haven't had much success with that. I find that something gets, like some of the yarn gets stuck and it just drags the sticks forward until it breaks or that, that um, binding happens. Um, so I prefer instead to weave and let the sticks advance with the warp the same way you would the rod at the end of the warp um, at the back beam. You know, just think of how far up you would weave before you would finish you know, your warp. Right. And then at that point, I untie the sticks and move them back one at a time um, and do that. But you'll find that, like, your warp might be a mess between the sticks and the warp beam, but it will be clean in front of it to the harness, which is what you need. You know, that's like, that's the key. Um, okay. So that, and I think also um, it, there's a temptation to um, keep the warp tension too tight. Okay. Which you don't want to do um, because that lack of elasticity you really want to, um, you need to give the yarn, um, 
some leeway for take up. Um, when I first, again, when I first started weaving, while well, I I made all these mistakes and I would like over tension the warp and um, it just wasn't fun at all. It was not a pleasant experience. But by backing off just slightly, um, or if you use a friction break, then you don't have to worry about it at all because it'll, it'll give every time the, the shed opens. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say do that. And like, don't, don't be scared of it. Um, I don't personally worry too much about humidity. Uh, some people make a big deal about that. Um, I think it doesn't matter nearly as much with the size yarns that most of us are going to use today. Mm-hmm. Like if you are working with a 70 singles, then humidity becomes really important. But um, you're probably not going to be. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't worked with the 70 singles yet. So, um, you know, not a thing to really worry about. The, the size of yarns you're probably going to um, want to work with an encounter um, will handle whatever your humidity is at the time. Okay. Which is fine. Um, yeah. Some people make a big deal about like they soak their, um, their weft yarn. They keep a humidifier going. They put a wet towel on the back beam. I mean, they do like all these things that I think are just not really necessary. Those, I think some of those techniques were learned from people who were doing the like incredibly fine linen damask mm-hmm. um, and we're not doing that. So don't worry about it. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. That's really, good yarn. that's really relieving right. because I'm, I'm a little nervous about it. I haven't used, I've woven with wool singles and have had great yeah. success with it. So I feel, and I've woven with plied linen. So mm-hmm. I think that the next logical step would be to use linen singles. Totally. Yeah. You'll be fine. Okay. It, like I said, it gets this, it's like, it's the big bad wolf, but really it's, it's just grandma. Yeah. Under that cloak. You'll be, you'll be okay. <laughs> so what do you do when, um, you have one of your warps break. Is it just the same sort of technique that you'd use for any other material to get it back in? Like weave a little bit and then sort of weave it back in, or do you have to do some other special thing for it? Um, it depends. When I was um, first doing a lot of singles linen warps, I would, um, I would, uh, you know, thread in a new end and weight it off the back and weave until I could pull in the new one and overlap them. Um, and avoided knots. I don't do that anymore. Um, I tie a weaver's knot in right where it breaks and just treat it like anything else. And then when the piece is done, I darn it out afterwards. Um, you darn out the knot. Um, and it seems to be fine. I used to be worried about the knot. Well, and actually, I shouldn't say I used to be worried. The knot used to cause problems. And the problem, I think, was that I was tying overhand knots to fix my warp ends. Mm. Instead of a weaver's knot. And the weaver's knot um, is a knot that uh, you all should know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it, have... There's a reason that everybody ties it, or, but it became a big thing. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, it makes an incredibly strong knot that has a very low profile um, as one key to it. And the way that the tails um, come out of that knot um, allows it to pass through the harness and the reed um, better than an overhand knot. So my big clunky overhand knots used to catch other warp bends and cause more problems. So before I learned not to do that. I used to go through the trouble of, of putting in a new, you know, and then and I'd hang over the weight and the whole bit. But um, life is short. Mm. Just tie yeah. on and get on with it. Like, <laughs> so when you're warping, do you uh, typically do front to back or like and then onto a plane beam? Or do you uh, thoughts on sectional beams for uh, linen? Um, I have only ever beamed. 
uh, warps back to front, like okay. beams warp chain directly onto the back beam. I would not recommend front to back warping with linen, and especially not singles linen. You know, the thing about it is your um, it is a delicate material, right? It doesn't have the added stability and strength of a second ply on it. Mm-hmm. So you do want to be, you know, conscientious of that. And for me, I think a lot of the yarns that I work with wouldn't hold up to getting dragged through a reed, you know, and heddles to wind on and then get dragged back through it to get woven up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they would shred and fall apart. Um, so, so I would wind on to the back. As far as a sectional beam, I don't know. I don't, I, because I've never done it. Um, I have no reason to think that it wouldn't work. Um, as long as your tension is good and consistent, yeah. it should be fine, I would think. So do you... Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> do you um, use anything to pack in between it, or you just go right on top of itself? Um, I used to um, use paper between the layers. I have become less enamored with the paper technique. Um, the problem being that, like, it's so hard to get paper that's stiff enough to really um, hold up on the beam. Uh, you know, the big problem is you'll have your ends, uh, your salvages, you know, like, um, dropping off the sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of cutting down uh, through the layers. So I have started going back to laugh every mm. few turns. It just depends on how, how heavy the yarn is. Um, I mean, that is the historic and traditional way of doing it. Um, paper's cheap and easy nowadays, so um, that's the way that I was taught to do it um, from Kate and Norman at the weaving school. Um, but I have lately moved back towards lath on the beam. Um, and partly it depends on your loom a little bit, too. Um, you know, the the angle of your warp line is really critical, and depending on whether your loom has a back beam that um, the warp comes off of that is separate from the warp beam, or whether your warp is coming directly off the warp beam can change that. You know, the back beam will keep it at the same height no matter what, so you can wind whatever you want on your beam and make it as big as you want, and it won't change the angle that the warp is coming down from. But Mm -hmm. if you've got a loom where the warp comes directly off that back beam, you just want to be conscious of how big that beam becomes because your warp starts getting very, very high in the back, which is fine, but it becomes um, tricky if you can't maintain that height um, consistently throughout the whole web. So it's a factor to, right. to think about. But, but I'm into sticks now. I've been kind of brought back um, to, the, to the old way. So I have a very tech, I have a technical question about that. When you yes. are winding around your beam and you're laying yep. your sticks down, yep. the next time you lay a stick down, do you put it directly on top or do you offset it into another part of the web? Directly on a stick. Directly on, directly onto the previous stick. Yeah. So that so that the strain is being applied to the sticks and then ultimately the core of the beam as opposed to being applied to the layers of warp in between. Okay. You know, the goal is just to create a, 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 um, a, a hard, consistent surface by applying that, that stick down. So if you can put it on the previous stack of sticks, it will um, help do that even more than if you put it in between them. Okay. Um, and I think it won't shift around the beam as much. Um, 
The longest warp I ever did was a combination of sticks and paper. It was worsted. It wasn't linen. But um, at the end of one roll of paper, which was like 30 yards or something of paper, um, I put in a round of sticks to try to like stabilize the beam again because I was worried about the salvage um, ends kind of falling off. And, uh, and then start up with paper again after that <clears throat> round of sticks. And uh, I got, as the first round of paper ran out, I actually was able to um, weave and wind on the cloth beam, I don't know, three or four times without actually advancing the back beam because like the sticks all slid around oh. <laughs> to the beam because there just wasn't anything that gripped them. They just sort of slid around. And as they did that, they let off more length every time. Right. Um, kind of a mess. It works, but it was um, not pretty at that mm. stage. Um, and it settled back down after that and, you know, woke the rest off fine. But, um, but uh, I would, I would layer the sticks on themselves. And like I said, okay. it doesn't have to be every round. Um, especially with something fine and um, hard spun like linen, you can do several turns um, of the beam before you put down, need to put down a stick. You just sort of look at it and you look and you think, is this warp starting to cut into the layers below it? Yeah. And once it starts getting to that point, then you want to set, set around sticks in there. Okay, cool. Oh. Yeah. So to me, that's a good case for not using a sectional beam. Because you wouldn't have that kind of control. The only way that you would be able to do that would be to cut window blinds. This is what my friend Didi used to do, mm -hmm. is in between the sections, she would wind a little bit, and then she would put like a little bit of a window blind mm -hmm. down as like her stick or her paper mm -hmm. to like Red. help separate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you'd have to do that. Or, I mean, you know... In the mills, you know, they don't use anything between the layers of yarn. They're just wound on so stinking tight um, and consistently, you know, and there are heads on the beam. That's really critical, you know, to have heads so that the, the salvage can't fall off the sides, you know, but they're able to wind that stuff on so tight that it doesn't need any separation. Right. Because there's just no way for that yarn to cut through the layers below it. Um, but I don't know of any humans. Can wind the beam <laughs> quite that tight. I mean, I well, I, I say that, but I have seen videos and pictures of people in, I think in India, um, working on hand looms where they have done that. I mean, their warps are just wound um, directly on themselves without even heads. So, so I shouldn't mm. say it can't be done, but I haven't seen anybody do it in front of me. So I don't know quite how to approach it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's interesting. I have um, 12, 12, uh, cotton that's spun like super tight and i from i when i do rugs i double the warps up uh each warp is doubled through uh well it goes through its own let's see no i double it through the uh heddle and through the reed and then when i get to the salvage i wind those separately onto their own spools and then i when i advance i pull them as hard as i possibly can and then clamp them to the back beam. And that's sort of been the way that I've been able to solve my um, salvage problem. And it really has done away with the need to use um, any kind of temple or anything when I'm weaving rugs. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely depends on what, you know, what type of fabric you're, you're making. Mm. Uh, I've always, you know, I've sort of like fantasized a little bit just because I'm interested in it technologically, you know, the whole idea of having 
separate little beams for salvage ends and having those ends just, you know, on their own little harness doing basket weave um, while the middle of the fabric is doing something totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think, it, you know, it's fascinating, interesting. It's definitely not something that was done on the type of fabrics that I tend to weave and um, is, is more complication than my looms need um, to have on them. But I do like the idea of <clears throat> really um, treating those salvages as the distinct separate things that they um, can be sometimes mm. or need to be, you know. So I have another technical weaving question. Thinking yes. about doing color changes as you're weaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're making reproduction fabric most of the time, along your selvages, do you weave in your ends every time you do a color change? Or do you leave those ends out and then darn them afterwards? How do you handle that kind of, when you're making a check or something like that, how do you handle that finishing stage? Yeah, my wefts just travel up the side. Um, okay. you see it on historic stuff all the time. Um, you know, the shuttle was just thrown on the web and the next time it was needed, it was pulled up and used and they just trail up the side and they're no nonsense. Um, saves tons of time Yeah. <laughs> uh, rather than stopping and starting and like finishing an end in there. And, um, by and large, they generally, um, well, an off- I say this, an awful lot of fabrics, um, Woven in the 18th and 19th centuries still survive with those um, those carried wefts on their selvage. They're still there. Um, they're still on blankets. They're still on household textiles. You know, that stuff is just, you know, they're still around. Um, sometimes if it's a really big um, carry up the side, I'll trim it off. But I don't darn it in, honestly. If the, okay. um, if the wefts on either side of it have um, caught the selvage, the fabric isn't going to pull apart there. So, I mean, it depends on what the material is. If it's wool, I, I don't worry about it because it's just, get, it's sort of stuck in there and it's not going to go anywhere. I've never had a blanket with like uh, a trimmed, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, a trimmed tail? Mm, except it's not a tail anymore because I trimmed it off. But you get the idea, right? Like right. Where, where a new color has started. I've never had that work its way out. Okay. Um, so I think it's not anything to worry about. I think we, we overcomplicate certain things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I say that next to this loop, but you know, <laughs> I think that um, there's a, there's a little bit of that, but I also think that because uh, like commercial textiles are so cheap that people don't understand like really taking care of your textiles. Um, so I think that for in in maybe some instances where you know, something's going to be more, like, not not as well taken care of, not uh, as any fault of anyone's, but just because of the way we view textiles now differently than maybe we viewed them, you know, back, like, from what you're recreating sort of uh, pieces from. I think that um, it may be a good idea for people like us, Tegan and I, to put a little more time into trimming just so... We don't get a call in six months saying, you know, my cat or my big toe or something caught one of those end pieces and just like squished that whole section of the weaving, you know, down from 60 inches to like 10. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 There's definitely uh, you'd have to um, factor in the end use, you know, of the 
of the thing with it too, you know, and, and you're sort of, you're hitting on kind of an interesting conundrum a little bit um, because that sort of touches on our value systems and how yeah. we ascribe value to these things um, because the amount of money generally that we are charging for these objects is so different than what people are accustomed to mm-hmm. in many ways. There comes with that a sort of an expectation of a certain kind of kind of perfection, whether that's yeah. based in reality or not. There's just sort of this idea that if I'm paying you, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for this object, that it should um, be perfect, know, like be perfect. And in a particular kind of a way that yeah. um, is one of the it's a thing that I think think about a lot um, in the work that I do because there's a certain amount of imperfection that makes that for me holds the appeal in a lot of the old stuff. Um, there's a certain kind of irregularity or um, lack of concern for a certain type of perfection that in itself becomes perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and looks really incredibly beautiful and gives it this very humanizing, um, approachable quality that is missing, I think, from mass-produced um, items in general nowadays. Uh, and so figuring out how to like translate that in a product that is also so high-end <laughs> and on you know, such a high-market, um, high-price type thing is really tricky in figuring out how to work with that. Uh, so, for instance, like I've been thinking about where to place the joins in Weft. Um, over the last several years, you know, when I was trained, we only joined at salvage and it was always a very small join and it was meant to be hidden. And that just is not what the old stuff has in it. I mean, you see these old, beautiful things and there's a big join like right in the middle of the fabric and it's right Right. there and kind of in front of your face. And, um, it took me a while to sort of embrace that. And, and, uh, I now join wherever the yarn runs out, um, and, and try to let it be part of the the thing because it, you know so often the yarn is spun so perfectly it just sort of lacks any other kind of uh sort of life and vitality without mm-hmm. having something in it like a join or, or whatever um, yeah that's how but, i join yeah i join my my yarn yeah. my weft in the fabric like when i run out of yarn because i was yeah. trained the same way that whenever you add a new weft it always has to be at the selvage and i right. found that it just took up so much time and also, I had so much wasted yarn because it's like, okay, like this is, I don't have enough to do another row, but I have to end it at the selvage. So I have to trim it off. And then there's extra scrap. And this just really extends the use of your weft and makes the flow easier because then you can just hold your harnesses up for an extra beat, switch your, your perns or your bobbins out, and then keep going. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and personally, like I just think they're really beautiful. I yeah, just think it's really nice to have just this little, this little bit of uh, evidence that you were there. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, if you want it to be perfectly like flat and even, like get a rapier loom, like yeah, <laughs> go get mm-hmm. a power loom where it's gonna you know change them on you know on the selvage on its own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting because when I started doing the dyeing, I did a bunch of research. I really figured it out, and I was like nailing perfect, like perfectly dyed skeins. Um, all the same color, all solid. And uh, I, I was just doing what was like what's in my head as it relates to other things I do, like with design uh, and development, you know, the theory of like dry development where you're not repeating yourself, you're doing everything consistent 
and solidly. And um, when I did that for Tegan, she was like, I mean, why don't we just buy it? Like, what's the point of right. dying it? Right. And I, it, it sort of like ticked a light in my head. Uh, and then I had to go back and I had to l- learn, like, in my brain, then I have to learn how to do it um, inconsistently. Consistently inconsistent, right? So exactly. I had then had to go back and like learn about how to maybe like twist or or shove too much into too little water or different techniques that I could use so that I could get that more human touch to the stuff we were dying. And I have to admit, though it annoyed me and I was not happy that I could not die beautiful solid pieces, I am actually very happy with how the stuff looks now. I just sort of went on autopilot and did the thing I knew as opposed to thinking about what really is the true like value of the thing that we're making. Right. Right. Yeah. It was yeah, an interesting, sure. uh, yeah, morning experience. For it me. was. Yeah. And I had to pull you there kicking and screaming. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm happy now. So I know that you dye a lot of your fiber. How do you go about that process? Like, are you doing it all naturally? Are you also using chemical dyes? Are you supplementing? How does that look in your business? Um, so I, any of the dyeing that I do is natural dyes. Mm-hmm. I am not opposed to working with a commercial synthetically dyed yarn if it's available and will work for the project. And if that's what the client wants, um, because the dyeing for me adds a huge amount of, um, time labor and then price, you know, down the line. So, um, so for some clients, that's just not an option or it's not worth it for the, the point of what they're doing. But for others, it really is. Um, yeah. So I just work with natural dyes and try to um, work with the more benign ones. Um, you know, I don't work with chrome or tin um, in my kitchen because I'd like to um, still be doing this in um, many decades from now. Um, yes. Adverse health effects. Um, but uh yeah, so it's very, um, oh, very cottage industry scale kind of a thing. Uh, you know, my biggest pot is a about a 30-gallon um, brewer's kettle, mm-hmm. which is my max capacity. You know, it's that. Well, and I also uh, have, like, 30-gallon trash cans that I'll do indigo in, um, which don't have to be heated in that same way. But um, so I would say it's, you know, I guess what people would call small batch. Um, dying but um i honestly you know some people are natural dyers and that is their thing and i dabble i would say i am by no means an expert or a pro um yeah. there are a few um dyes that i feel very confident working with and um use repeatedly fortunately um my general color palette and aesthetic is pretty um pretty subdued yes (laughs) so that limited color palette works out just fine for me um but uh yeah it's all very small i am i i i haven't suffered from the problem of um too perfect or too consistent a result um ever in my my dying um practice so (laughs) well not as easy to to do with naturals yeah that irregularity just just flows forth um Mm -hmm from my hands but um uh but i did um a fair amount of work with 
synthetic dyes when I worked for Kate. Okay. Um, we did a lot of work with acid dyes and fiber reactive, um, although much more with acid because we did so much wool weaving there. Um, and part of that, that experience is part of what pushed me towards all, pretty much only working with natural dyes um, for myself, partly because it um, takes some of the pressure off from what um, my experience was working with her, you know, because she does so much work for interior designers or people who are very um, exacting about what they're looking for. We spent tons and tons of time color matching, which meant, you know, maybe you guys, I'm sure, uh, you know, have worked with um, like ProCam, you know, mm-hmm. acid dyes, yeah. so you've seen like the full range of stuff they have. So, you know, imagine staring down a shelf with a hundred dye canisters and trying to come up with what combination of four of those and what percentage is going to create that exact color and then dyeing 20 different samples to try to get it <laughs> and then taking that small sample and then scaling it up to, you know, eight pounds of yarn and then discovering was my scale accurate enough to find that, you know, uh, 0.003% um, in black. <laughs> like, was that mm-hmm. actually what that was in that sample or was it slightly off? And now has that skewed my whole, you know, full size dye batch? or, or die bath. Um, there was just uh, so much opportunity for um, error. And, you know, with that comes a big waste or loss of time and, and yarn with it that I decided to, um, by sticking with natural dyes, I don't guarantee a color match. Um, you know, if I'm working with indigo, it will be a wonderful indigo blue and we can aim for dark, medium or light and that kind of a thing. But, right. um, you know, I don't try to try to match a previous result. You know, each batch is what it is. And um, in that way, I kind of I like it. And that allows us to, to sort of focus on um, kind of celebrating what that particular vat produced and working with that. And the next one's going to be unique and different. And um, be sure to order as much fabric as you want the first time because you will never get the same thing again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is the other caveat. Um, who do you who do you use for natural dyes, or do you grow your own indigo? I um I buy, um just because there's so much going on as it is already that adding one more thing would be too much. Um, although someday I would like to add more of that uh, to what I do, but um, I purchase from Maiwa. Okay. Um, who are out uh, in Canada in, I want to say Vancouver. I could be totally wrong about that, but they're on the West Coast. Um, wonderful customer service. Uh, the material has been top-notch. Um, they're very um, open with their um, knowledge and instructions. Uh, they write wonderful little thank you notes. Um, they're just great. I, just, I think they're wonderful all around. Um, and for those of us in the States, I hate to, um, you know, promote international buying, um, but the exchange rate is really good. So okay. um, their prices are really reasonable to begin with. And then um, if the uh, if the American dollar is strong, you can get that much more dye. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for me, that's been great just because, you know, getting started. When you are doing uh, indigo in uh, garbage cans, what is the material of the garbage can? Uh, those are just plastic. Plastic? Plastic cans, yeah. I mean, so I don't do all of that in that sort of thing, but if I'm making a, um, 
like a quick and dirty lye and thiox type vat, the, the trash can works out well. I also have like smaller trash cans for um, urine fermentation vats, which um, I was doing a few years ago. I actually dumped them. They kind of petered out and, and reached the end of their useful life. So I need to start some new ones, but um, I just use those. Or if I'm doing like a smaller vat, um, say a copperous vat for doing cellulose fibers, I just do that like a five-gallon plastic bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, simple, easy stuff. You know, someday it'd be great to have some beautiful container to do it in. But Yeah, it's yeah. interesting because some people are like um, religious about the material that they use for their vats. And some people are just like, you know, whatever I got, I'll use that. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah. so how do you feel about the color fastness of your natural dyed products? Um it uh it you know it varies dye by dye. You know, indigo is one of the most light and wash fast dyes available of any kind. Um, you know, it it holds its own um just fine. You know, yellows tend to be the least stable. Um so there's the most risk for color loss that way. Um, the thing, I guess, about them that I like in that regard is that, like anything, you can put anything in the sun and the UV rays are going to destroy it. It's just, mm-hmm. it's going to happen, whether it's synthetic or not. I've seen enough acid diet stuff from 30 years ago that's been sitting in sunlight to see what happens to it over time. Mm-hmm. And I would rather watch the natural color shift and change over time and then watch the synthetic personally just from again what i've seen on um acid dyed wool um over time uh, which isn't to say it's not beautiful in its own way but um given the, uh, the choice i think it's more interesting to sort of watch what the natural um dyes do um eventually if i'm doing something for a historic site i actually think it's kind of important that the dye degrade in a historically appropriate way, because if you dyed that with a synthetic material, it's going to fade out into a color that's not, not appropriate. Mm. Um, right. Weirdly, uh, you know, yeah. if you're going to get the same effect of what that thing looks like over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't really even, important. I hadn't even thought about the wear factor right. of it. Like yeah. that it wears and becomes part of the scenery like it had before. Like I hadn't even thought of that before. Yeah, that's another layer. I mean, I'm sure most um, museum, the people in charge of buying the things for the museum probably would prefer that it didn't ever change color. But, you know, the reality is, no matter what it is, it's going to do it eventually. And so um, I think it's better for it to do it the way that it would have then rather than um, the way it would now. Mm -hmm. What are... So now we can go to the question of what are some of the things that you love about your job? Like what really brings you back and keeps coming back to weaving? Um, the first yard of every piece mm-hmm. is always the, you know, that exciting, you know, you imagine this thing in your head, um, you know, you've done all the specs, you've worked with the material, you've got it all set up and now to like actually see it woven is very exciting. It's, you know, it's everything in between that and the end. That is the tricky um, part sometimes to keep coming back to uh depending on what the project is <laughs> but uh yeah that's exciting there's um there are so many fabrics that i haven't woven that i would love to see um to see woven up you know if you work with a historic draft book you know they're just like page after page after page of all of these drafts in there that 
um, someday, you know, I'd love to see what that actually makes in a fabric. Um, so that's fun and exciting. Um, pursuing the technology is a big draw for me. Um, as you guys know, I just in the last few months um, got my hands on a 19th century jacquard head and I've been working with that, and, which has been a dream since I was a kid. Um, you know, uh, I grew up in Rhode Island, and so I went to Slater Mill a lot as a kid. It was like one of the go-to places that my dad would take me um, growing up if we needed to kill some time. And um, seeing those machines um, in operation just had always been fascinating, uh, really just mesmerized me. So um, so now having this one to work with and understanding how it works and just working with it and getting into that has been a big draw. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I haven't I haven't hit a wall yet. Um, I mean, uh, there is oh gosh, how am I what am I trying to say? I'm I'm taking your question and flipping it on you. Um, Do it. So I apologize a little bit, but I mean that to me, you know, as I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast understands that we've chosen to take a thing that we enjoy doing and also make it our livelihood or at least partially livelihood, which means it becomes work and work isn't always fun. And there, you know, part of it is just showing up and doing it and putting in time. Um, and then coming out of that, you know, the other side of that, to me, that feels like when it starts to really become a trade or a craft or, you know, uh, a learned skill in that way. Um, and I, I still am, to some degree, in that stage of putting in time um, and kind of seeing how I come out on the other side um, yeah. a little bit. Um, I, you know, I guess maybe we all are until, you know, until we drop dead, but um, <laughs> kind of in that, in that place. But um, so I guess in some way, actually, weirdly, um, the days when I'm not into it and can't get motivated are the days also that keep me coming back (laughs) because at the other end of that, there is something to learn that I am still, um, you know, working towards. And, um, I think it is helpful for all of us to be able to, um, like recognize that and be honest about it, that that it's not always like, you know, sunshine and roses and puppies and kittens. Yeah. Every day you sit down to work, you know, there are just some days where you just got to slog through it and, you know, put up with a project that you do not want to work on. But, um, but just keep pushing at it, you know, pick by pick and eventually it's done. And, uh, um, and I think that experience really teaches us something about ourselves um, and about the work. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I like to put um, some kind of perspective on it that, you know, when I was working for somebody else, I didn't really get to choose what I worked on and the whatever came my way was the thing I had to do. And I would much rather have things that I choose. I would much rather be miserable through things that I choose than things that are sort of hoist upon me by somebody else, you know? So I always like to have that, that kind of thing in the back of my head, even when I'm like annoyed that, it's two o'clock in the morning and I'm still sitting here doing something uh, because something's due tomorrow that I'd rather be doing that for me than for somebody else. Right. The sort of self-determination of the work that I'm doing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that I think is a thing that like I I assume I guess um, kind of draws all of us to what we do um, yeah. by choosing to do this thing. Nobody is forced to weave fabric by hand in the United States. That's not mm-hmm. a thing that like <laughs> um, you know we've all really uh, made an active choice to do this thing. And so um, uh, I think what you're talking about that 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 self determination and um, that aspect of um, being in a business or a trade for oneself um, or a craft for oneself mm-hmm. um, in, its, in itself is, is a big appeal or a motivator, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, kind of on that topic and also calling back to the beginning of our conversation, do you like doing projects more where somebody comes to you and you execute a service for them? And then you can keep your creativity for your own projects that you want to se- like make and sell direct to customer. Or do you like when um, somebody comes to you with a commission, but they're not really sure, <clears throat> and they want you to use your creativity and your style to come up with something, and then you get to make that for them? Which, sort of which uh, one of those is more interesting for you and more fun? Um, I guess it depends on, it depends on the project. So I've done plenty of, um, commission pieces, you know, where a client brings in a job that, um, I would never have thought to do on my own. And mm-hmm. so in that way, um, it can be fun because you just get somebody else's, um, you know, participation in the process, which brings its own set of perspectives, you know, or they'll have this really cool thing that they want reproduced that I've never seen before. So it gives me a chance to, you know, get up close and, and check the thing out. So that can be great. Um, I, I feel the most pressure and I have the least enjoyment, I think, or so far, <laughs> when a client has come to me for custom fabric, but doesn't really know what they want. Um, because it, and, you know, this is, you know, not to fault anybody um, for this, but I feel enormous pressure to try to, like, read their mind and try to figure out what that thing is that's going to make them happy. And mm-hmm. that can be very difficult. And I feel a lot of pressure with the kind of money we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so that probably for me is just, you know, my own kind of financial baggage um, or, or baggage I bring around the idea of money um, myself. But um, so so I guess that can go either way. Um, I've only in the last year and a half really, um, started making things to sell directly to, um, customers, which has been a lot of fun, but not necessarily, um, so far has not been the most lucrative, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm, this is sort of early, you know, I'm, I'm at the beginning stages of building up inventory and, um, I'm still doing that in between commission work. So it's not like I'm, I spent a year and a half just stacking up, you know, piles of stuff to sell. So, mm-hmm. um, so the things I've been offering have been fairly limited so far, but it's great fun to just sit down and like make the thing that I want to make. Um, but it can be a little nerve wracking cause I have no clue if anybody else wants to buy that thing, mm-hmm. um, yet. So, you know, so they, they both have their, um, the pros and cons. I'm not sure that I can weigh any one of them more than the other one. Um, they're just very different ways of, of working. Yeah, for sure. I agree with you there. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. nice. I do like the idea of like somebody coming to us and we sort of perform a service for them and we get paid for that. I think it's a nice break in between 
with you know you have a little bit of money coming in you know that you're you're like you've got the next six weeks covered so that you can spend time on your own stuff and then you know after you're finished with that chunk of your own stuff for direct customer then you can go and pick up another commission that maybe you've been like working on uh developing and designing or whatever during that time we were working on your own things i kind of like having both of them uh and we do shows a lot or did shows a lot so it was nice to be able to do that and go and meet people and talk to people where you can really get a good idea really fast of what people like and what people don't like like one of our our favorite colors to weave in is purple and we have an extremely hard time selling purple things purple things are always the last of whatever like the run of five to ten colors that we do of one product there's always like two purples sitting there when everything else is gone (laughs) it's a funny thing yeah yeah Yeah, it's interesting and who knows if it'll always be like that maybe one day like red won't you know one year red just won't sell and everybody will be buying purple it's hard to tell but it's really interesting when you go to shows you can get that sort of instant feedback even if somebody's not talking to you when they walk in you can see the thing that they go for and the thing that they definitely don't go for so yeah i mean it's it'd be nice to be able to get back to shows someday and you know get that interaction again because it's kind of hard you know sitting here alone in the studio trying to develop things that you hope will sort of speak for themselves online and then you'll be able to sell them it's sort of it's a difficult and different thing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I, uh, I hear you. <laughs> and actually, that brings up a point: the drawback of working with a client who doesn't necessarily know exactly what kind of fabric they want. Part of that, I should say, is because in this current um, or the way that I have been working, um, that's almost always done long distance. So it's always mm-hmm. a matter of emails or talking on the phone. And I imagine if we had a face-to-face meeting and I had a whole bunch of fabric in front of us that process would be much smoother and much easier to come up with, um, you know, because like you're saying, you get that instant feedback and you can um, gauge and anticipate what that person is drawn to in a way mm-hmm. that uh, is hard to do sometimes via, you know, um, via emails. Um, but yeah. that, and that mix of like commission work and ready-made stuff um, is very it's you know it's a very old <laughs> traditional historic way of working um you know a lot of professional weavers in the 18th and 19th centuries worked in that kind of a way um with this this blend of both of those income streams um and i think um it, that says a lot you know it's just a really i think sensible way of doing it you've got big chunks of money that are covered you know big projects that are covered for you know that there's a buyer for them at the end um while also being able to make things in the in the in between time and um, things that maybe are more personally, you know, enjoyable. Mm. And I think to, um, well, I lost it. Uh, one inspires the other or like one leads yeah. to the other as well. I think that, you know, if, if people like good weavers are doing only direct customer, I think that that's probably because they've made that very conscious choice to basically just turn down anything that anybody comes to them with because if you're good and you're putting yourself out there people are going to want 
you know, from time to time at least, some custom piece because they saw that you made this one thing and then, you know, they feel inspired by like, oh, that could fit really well in this part of my house. And maybe you made like a rug, but they see that and they think, oh, I could use that as a uh, bath towel or I could use that in the kitchen somewhere or that would make a beautiful curtain. Um, and I think that really that's sort of how we get like a, tr a fair chunk of our commission work is people say, I really love this pattern or I really love this material. Can we make this in a different color for this other use? And, you know, often it's just something like you said that we've never even thought about. We sort of designed this thing to like, you know, be sold, you know, to be able to be easily made really fast, a lot in large quantities. And then we could sell a bunch of it and use that money to like fund a more fun project or a different thing. Um, and then it sort of sparks some joy and gives us energy and sort of inspiration to maybe think like a little bit outside the box in a different direction, which is always fun and cool, which can then lead to other neat uh, like retail products that can then lead to other neat commission work. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So how do you sell your ready-made work? Are you selling online? Were you gearing up to do craft shows before COVID hit? What was kind of your trajectory for selling? Right. Yeah, I, um, I started selling online through my website. And then um, I came out to um, speak at your guild meeting and talk to you guys about shows and got very interested and excited about that idea and started doing research on them. And then the world shut down. So I decided <laughs> not this year. I guess we're going to put that off for a little while. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's been just through those avenues really so far. I've had um, some items in galleries um, before and hopefully um, have something coming up depending on when this um, podcast airs. Maybe it'll have happened by then. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I'm just kind of pursuing those more, um, I guess, passive ways of selling right now, just because it's very difficult to be with other people and active um, yeah. at the moment. Um, yeah, and I'm still, you know, trying to figure out advertising and all of that. That's a whole other world that um, I have avoided. <laughs> It's tricky. You are doing yeah. an amazing job on Instagram, like sharing those like little instructional videos that you've been doing or like just sharing the steps of the weaving process. You blew my mind with drawing in, like drawing in the right. heddles. Like that's a right. I have never seen anybody draw in like that before because I've always yeah. done it like one like I at max hold like four threads in my hand in between each finger go through yep. like it's so slow and so monotonous yeah 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 i don't know that technique is one that norman kennedy picked up some at some point along his travels and i don't know i really need to talk to him to see if he still remembers where he got it from because it, what's interesting to me about that is that it's not what we see in historic books like books from the 18th and 19th centuries talk about having two people one person is at the lease and is like pre-selecting your end for you. And the other person is drawing in. 
Um, they almost always talk about it being a two-person operation. And that single-handed thing, my guess is, you know, this is just speculation on my part, but my guess is that that developed in the mills. Um, you know, reducing the second person seems exactly like something that um, you would do in a factory setting. And um, that whole trick of, of holding um, a pre-selected, you know, large group of ends in your hand and replicating the lease and doing that thing is just like a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant way of doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. it just, there's a lot of, yeah. It just looks so easy. You made it look so effortless and just like, oh, thanks. Yeah. So much faster. I mean, I, I've done it a few times, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't look like that when I first did it. But, um, but you know, you, the more you do it, the, the easier and faster it becomes. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a thing that um, I've been sharing. I think a lot of the technique stuff, partly because I'm kind of, um, Distressed isn't the right word. I, I have this sort of like premature, like old man, shaky fists, uh, like yeah, your kids get off my lawn, um, sort of uh, side of my personality already um, uh, towards a lot of modern American hand weaving technique. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a technique, I'm a tools and technique kind of guy um, in a lot of ways. And um, so much of the tradition seems to have really kind of broken off at the turn of the century and a lot of the stuff that's done nowadays was kind of cobbled together and or made up in the 20th century and so stuff like drawing in like nobody <laughs> nobody has a technique for that really it's just right. sort of like find your end and put it in the heddle and make it happen there's no like thought to ways to make that more efficient and and warp making um like nobody made a warp with one end at a time before like 1900 like that's a new thing, and it's no right. wonder that everybody hates making warps. Because if you're, you know, going to spend three days trying to wind a warp with one cone yarn, um, like that's just awful. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I, when I first started weaving, before I met Kate and learned from her and Norman, like that's what I did because I didn't have anybody else to show me anything different. And um, and so um, the the um, tradition and the the individual techniques that make that up that i have learned through them um i feel really strongly about sharing and and getting out in the world and keeping alive because yeah. um they're just i mean in my opinion i'm biased clearly um <laughs> but they make so much more sense to me i think and are so much faster and easier and you know and they're the result of literally centuries of human thought and ingenuity and development um you know, humans have spent <laughs> um, much of our of our history working on ways to make textile making more efficient and faster and um, consistent, and to sort of see all of that kind of tossed away in the 20th century um, and forgotten is is distressing to me a little bit and sort of sad. Um, yeah. So. Well, I'm glad you're sharing it because now it's giving me new things that I have to learn because I thought, oh, this is the way I've always done it. So that's the way I'm going to always do it. But lately I've been struggling with the drawing in process because I've been doing a lot of uh, parallel threadings or uh -huh. doing more color work in my warp. And so it's been more of a struggle to keep things organized and to make it more efficient. So I had been dreading it. So now I'm like really excited to get my loom dressed with something complicated so that yeah. 
I can like try these techniques out or figure out how to implement it into my practice with a mm-hmm. sectional beam. Like, so now I have to figure out like a Lee stick system, but that would probably make my threading life so much easier. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I can't say because I haven't done um, any works on sectional beam, but I would imagine that that it would. And, you know, yeah. and I should like, you know, say also that like the way that I was taught is not the end all be all. There are plenty of other traditional techniques. But but what I see a lot in modern American hand weaving, in my mind, does not come from a tradition. It, yeah. It's kind of a made up thing um, that happened in the 20th century that I think was just due to a lack of available skill to pass on and um i think probably also developed along with the tools which in many ways i think were based on power loom technology and not things that were built for people to operate right (laughs) so there's a lot of like ergonomic stuff about modern hand looms that i think is awful for um the body um Mm -hmm. because it's meant to be run by reciprocal motion coming off a cam and you know a circular drive (laughs) and not people you know people don't spin around we move forward and back and so hand looms you know built prior to uh, or traditional hand looms um you know built in the 18th or up until the end of the 19th century you know were built with that in mind um and you see it still in um the swedish weaving tradition and and those tools generally still maintain that kind of principle um but a lot of the other uh, manufacturers and and the kind of the ways that those tools are used um i think don't draw from that um as much but again i'm i'm one on the one hand i'm biased on the other hand i also just don't have experience with like regular modern american hand looms i just don't right. use them and haven't so like i really can't say um mm-hmm. i've worked with them a little bit um you know here and there for for a few things and um uh i wasn't impressed but um, but if you're a loom manufacturer out there and you want to sponsor me to do something, um, you know, just shoot me an email. Yeah, please get a hold of him. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the, I think that the most comfortable loom that I've used is a Varpa, which was made in Finland in the 70s, right? Yeah. In the 70s. And um, that is, seems to be the most comfortable. It's a countermarsh. And mm-hmm. I feel like when I sit at it, I'm like, I'm really kind of in it a little bit and I feel more comfortable with like the height of the treadles and, and how I can adjust them if I need. Um, I just have to have like a pillow on my chair and I actually, I use a regular, it's like a mid height kind of, um, it's like a bar stool. Yeah. Bar stool height chair mm-hmm. that I use and I just like set the front legs inside the uh front bottom post and i can just sit at it and weave away i mean it helps that it's comfortable because you know it takes me like a year and a half to do a rug so (laughs) you know i mean regardless of how many you were making you know just the fact that we're gonna be these that these tools for long periods of time regardless you know you need something that's gonna work with your body yeah Yeah. Um, i should know that (laughs) right exactly right speaking from experience yes (laughs) yeah so i guess we're at the point of our last two questions well i do have another question okay about um going way back to the beginning uh you had mentioned well we were talking about like the historical reference and 
uh, like the books a few minutes ago, um, looking through the historical books with just, you know, page after page of drafting. Um, I know that uh, there are many, many ways to write drafts. And I'm curious, uh, given your history of historical weaving, do you, was there a point where you had to like really sit down and learn on your own how to read these drafts? Like, how would I go about, you know, just being a, a weaver who's, you know, referenced more modern books? Yeah. Sometimes I look at these old books and the drawings that they have are so cool, but it, I might as well like be reading, you know, acrylic or a, like Asian language of some sort that is yeah. just in totally different glyphs. Totally. Totally. Um, I would say um, the, uh, I can't remember now when it came out, um, but the book, The Weaving Roses, um, that's about um, William Henry Harrison Rose of Rhode Island, um, who is a man after my own heart. Um, he and his sister were kind of like old fashioned stick in the mud type people who kept, you know, sort of were living 50 years behind the times. Mm-hmm. Um, around the turn of the century, uh, and were prolific hand weavers and had a huge collection of drafts that were not just theirs, but also, um, came from their family. So there was some really early stuff that was in there. Um, so that book, uh, has taken and put into modern, um, it's not a facsimile type book, so it's not like photographs of the drafts, but it um, has reprinted the drafts that were in that collection. And in the introduction, there's a good breakdown of the various systems that they were using that the roses were using so you can get a sense of how those worked. Um, and so that's a good resource. Um, I'm kind of blanking on other ones. They're out there though. Um, there are, um, there's a historic weaving draft study group through complex weavers that oh. if anybody's interested in, check it out. Cause that's where all of us who have those sorts of, you know, minds, um, are putting them. Oh. Um, so that's a thing to check out. What I think, what I would suggest personally, um, again, because this is my bias, is um, learn how to read them and then, and then draw in from them. Like, don't take it and write it out in the notation that you're used to. Maybe do that as an exercise, but try to actually like, sit in the loom and wrap your head around the way that they thought about drawing in. Because okay. you learn an awful lot about the structures, I think. Um, and the way that they were designed by doing that, you know, we, it's, it's one of those things where like, we translate everything into numbers and then translate the numbers back into things. Um, you know, if like you're weaving, uh, something on a loom that has panels that have stripes or, or blocks that need to match on something, you can sit there with a tape measure and you can translate all of the points where the stripes hit or whatever it is, you mm-hmm. know? into a measurement, uh, you know, a numerical measurement, and then write that down and then go back and try to use the numerical measurement to work backwards to get the distances on the next woven thing. Or you can take a piece of paper and just mark off physically <laughs> as you go, um, you know, or, or a tape or something. Um, you know, like this happened with tailoring. Um, historically, you know, when you've got your measurements made uh, or taken for making clothes, tailors used to work with a piece of paper and they would literally just hold it on your body and snip to make little marks in it for all the measurements they needed. Oh. And that's the distance. 
And later on in the 19th century, people started um, shifting over to using tape measures and rulers. So then you went to the body and you found the number and then they took that number down to the pattern or the fabric itself and found the number again on a ruler and then drew it out. As opposed to thinking of the increment as the distance and marking that with something. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but you sort of mm. like, we're adding the numerical step. And right. that translation in there that doesn't need to exist necessarily. Um, and so I think it's, it's like instructive, uses different parts of the brain, clearly, um, to like look at some of these old notation systems. And once you're, you're comfortable with them, you can start looking at them and you see um, the sort of direct correlation that those written notations make to the loom itself. I know that sounds like weird and it's hard to describe. Um, but it's, you know, and it's sort of like thinking of, um, you know, the drafts are like musical notation, right? Like they aren't the music. It's sort of the help to get you there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so understanding better the, the way that they thought of those notes as leading to that music or that woven thing um, tells you about them. It tells you about the craft itself um, and just, I think, opens up like different ways of thinking about weaving um, yeah. that are helpful. Mm, that's for sure. I don't know. That's no, that's hard to describe, maybe, but <laughs> well, it's a good it's a good thing to challenge your brain too, because we as a society have become so dependent on that number system, like adding those numbers back into something and then translating it to what we need. So right. I feel like it would be a good exercise to really take it direct from the paper and draw it in because then like you said you're going to learn so much more about the structure i learned so much about overshot by looking at old drafts and like how they would group things together like this is the border this is the block like this is how we repeat it it's i learned so much more about how the structure works and how the technique works by doing it that way yeah yeah absolutely um but the only way I had I could learn how to do that was to translate the to the numbers first. Mm-hmm. Right. right. I had, right. To, yeah. I had to, because yeah. I was so trained to do it and now it's like, oh, I understand like I can just take these blocks and move them around and Right. Mm. Right. Yeah, early on you might want to take, you know, take take an old draft and sit down with graph paper or whatever your preferred, you know, notation system of today, you know, translate it to so get a feel for that weave it so you really start to get yourself into the, what the you know the, the physical yarn is doing and then yeah. go back to that older or those other systems um because i think you know they have a lot of value i mean this is coming from a time when um pen and paper are not you know not prohibitively expensive but um it's harder to write things down and make notation of it um historically than it is nowadays for us to do you know when you can just snap a picture with a cell phone today you know we can notate and save all these things so easily but um, historically that wasn't the case so um these weavers came up with very efficient ways of notating um structures using as little ink in as little paper as possible um just for you know speed and efficiency sake and right um so yeah i think they're valuable i think they're cool and you'll impress all your friends when you to a guilt meeting mm-hmm. yes you, show them, you, know, you share the draft in your old notation system or you take their drafts and then you write them out in the old system and uh, you know it's like it's like having another language um, yeah yeah for sure it is 
So last two questions. Okay, last two questions. I'm sure you know what they are. I do. I do. So we'll start with the mistake. (laughs) Biggest mistake. I have made a lot of them. Uh, (laughs) So I'm trying to think of what what the biggest one was. Um, As I was thinking about this today, I thought probably the one that um, sticks with me the most or stings the most, it's also probably the most recent one of them, um, has been in the finishing of fabric. And I'm sure anybody, you know, if you've you've botched a finished job, you know how painful this experience is. I had... um, just recently wove a whole bunch of um, bleached table linen for a client. I had the stuff washed. I hung it up on the poles that I used to dry um, fabric on. And I noticed there was like a little black speck of something on it. And it didn't brush off. And it seemed like it maybe was like grease or something that maybe came from the washing machine. So I, um, you know, panicked like any um, sensible person would do mm-hmm. and uh, was rational. And my... <laughs> instinct was to go grab some oxyclean while the fabric was wet and i put some oxyclean on it to try to get that black bit of grease to come out of it which um it did fairly effectively but in the process it also bleached that spot of the tablecloth it was on like optically bright white like whiter than the bleached linen was Mm. and there was just no way to like get the whole thing bleached consistently to that brighter white color um and I just like, you know, it was such a subtle thing, but once it was pressed and, you know, laid out flat, like you could totally tell where that little spot had been. Mm-hmm. And there was just like nothing I could do to, uh, to save it. So fortunately for me, the loom still had, um, uh, it was still threaded with that pattern in it. So made a new warp, beamed it on, it tied it on, wove off that little piece. Um, and I'm now the proud owner of a slightly splotchy white linen, um, now you've got an awesome uh, tablecloth in a story. I do. Yeah. And, you know, pretty soon it's going to have like red wine all over it and gravy and whatever. So it's not going to matter. But um, yeah. So so that was that one. Um, finishing, I think, like, you know, that's my least favorite part of the whole process because for this very reason, like you can mm. botch a ton of time and material in um, an instant. I mean, it takes like nothing to yeah. um, totally screw it up. I just, I just finished 30 yards of Shibori and that was a little bit of my nightmare, like ironing it all, washing it, washing it again, drying it. It was like just so much fabric that at any point something could go wrong. Mm. Like yeah. it was out of my hands at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it felt uh, like. Yeah. Well, in college, yeah, Tegan wove a beautiful hand dyed. <laughs> she hand dyed it all. Uh, was it alpaca? It was alpaca. Yeah, and the sample went great. It went through the washing machine. It looked so good. And then, how many yards did you weave? I mean, it was a ton. I wove about eight yards. Yeah, for I mean, for college days, that was a lot. Yeah. Um, now that's like an afternoon warp, but. Uh, in college, that was a lot, and so sh- you, we like put it through the washing machine, the same exact settings, everything. But it must have been because there was so much more of it. It went from like a nice eight yard piece down to like a yard and a half, two yards. <laughs> it 
it just went. It became the purple monster. Yeah. And it was very disappointing. I cut it up and use it for coasters because that's all that's all I was willing to do with it because it just it was like a shadow weave done with two different shades of blue and two different shades of purple and it all undulated but once it felted down it just it was gone. It was all gone. And then I used that same yeah. yard yeah. and I was like, "Oh, yeah. it felt so easily." why don't I just do this like felted shibori technique where like you put a resist down and it keeps that open and then the rest of it felts and it would not felt for the life of me. No matter what I did, I threw everything at it and it just would not do the same thing. So mm. it must've been the amount that was in the washing machine. Yeah. Just that's, that's agitated. All I can never think of. Yeah. Yeah. So now to my favorite question is what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received that so i've been thinking about that (laughs) um and i can't think of a nice pithy thing like one thing that somebody has said that i go back to so Mm -hmm. um but i would say that i have seen like demonstrated this thing which I think is the best piece of advice that I've gotten. So the thing that was said to me without words really was um, to really know, know yourself and what you are producing. Um, But to know yourself (laughs) through and through, um, because that's the thing that you're selling and that's the thing you're making. Um, That's the thing that people are buying too. Um, You know, you can sort of see when, you know, a lot of us get started, we're like all over the place and like, don't know what we're doing. Um, not that we don't know, like technically, but like we want to do everything. And like, um, and then you start seeing as people kind of mature in their, um, practice, whatever it is, you know, they start to develop a particular, a look and a style and a feel that starts to come through the stuff they're making. And that's, you know, that becomes recognizable. And I think personally, I think that that's the thing that people are drawn to who want to own a piece of stuff that somebody makes. Um, it's not, it's, it's just as much the, the, the story and the people behind the thing that you're getting. And, um, I, you know, was really fortunate to work with a lot of people who really had a very clear sense of what they were passionate about. And that just came through like through their work through and through now um, it was unmistakable and gave it, um, a character and a quality that made it different from what other people were doing, which yeah. was also beautiful and interesting in its own right. But you could, you got the personality of the the person behind it, and I think that that is really um, that's very special, and that's what is missing from mass produced stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think like Weaver, know thyself would be my. <laughs> a little sort of piece of advice um that i sort of saw demonstrated and and try to try to live up to yeah i think that's yeah. really important i i agree with you on that because like as somebody who works by themselves all the time you really have to know yourself and what you're really driven to do within that because it's yeah. so easy to get caught up in like the minutia of working and just kind of lose yourself in it but once you really understand who you are as a person and why you weave or why you create even 
it just makes what you create that much more impactful. Mm. Yeah. It, it really yeah. draws in what you're putting into it. Absolutely. Like you can tell when people make stuff just because they think it's going to sell. Yeah. Like not stuff that they actually want to make or have any real, you know, and we all make stuff we don't want to make, but like <laughs> that has like no relationship at all to the rest of what they're doing or what they're about. And it's just sort of like, this is clearly the thing you're just trying to like push out the door. Right. And mm-hmm. it just, it feels like that. And I don't think that that um, works as far as like, um customer appeal but i mean what do i know really um you're just a professional weaver sharing what's in your brain yeah but you know um i think that just from my including all of the time that i've spent working with tegan and going to shows and all that but also with um my experience in marketing for other businesses and things of all sizes um it's interesting because the best response i've seen to um content like uh not content but um product yeah and i guess to some degree content as you put it out is when that content or product is authentic and i think even if the customer or the person that's just you know taking in what you're putting out um, I think that even if they don't realize they understand what is and isn't authentic, um, then I guess that's where I go with that. But I think I agree with what you're saying yeah. is that, you know, really be authentic with your, your work and what you do and the show, I mean, even the shows you go to, right? So like if you're going to a show just because you think it'll, you know, be a good show for you that's not necessarily a good reason to go to a show. You should go to the show because you want to go to the show and you think that the customers there will enhance your work and you will enhance their lives and it'll be the the right fit all around. Um, because people can tell when you're just like there as like a job that you have to do. And Absolutely. it's not right. like um, you don't draw the same amount of people in or the same kind of people in. There's different people yeah. that are drawn to that energy and they're maybe not the people that will buy your work. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun catching up with you and chatting with you and learning more about your work. It's been awesome. Thank you so much for doing the podcast with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was great. Yeah. Any, any chance to talk nerdy, right? Absolutely. It was cool to hear how weavers of the past made a living similar to how we are operating today by diversifying our income streams. If you think that was cool, tune in next week for an announcement involving Justin and other previous podcast guests. A special thank you again to our patrons. Your support means the world to us. Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. Don't forget to send your questions to hello at proweaverpod.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society. And you can get full show notes at proweaverpod.com. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you each Friday. Bye. Bye.